0: Welcome to the Everyday Discernment Podcast. As always, a member of the Charisma Podcast Network and the Edify Podcast Network. This is episode 46. Hopefully you checked out last week's episode. I had a great conversation with my friend Chris. We talked a lot about his faith, also how to share our faith with atheists. So check that out. If you enjoy this podcast and the content I'm sending you for free, would you consider supporting what I'm doing? The best way to do that is to sign up as a Patreon supporter. Go to patreon.com slash discerning dad, and you have a chance to sign up at different tiers, levels of support, and with that, you can get exclusive content like an autographed copy of my book, Everyday Discernment, my second podcast, as well as merchandise. I will also give you a shout out on the podcast if you are a new Patreon supporter. And for today's episode, I have Peter Lublink on. He's going to tell you about his organization, Bethany Kids, and the awesome work they are doing for kids overseas. Here we go.
1: Welcome to the Everyday Discernment Podcast. This show is about you and your walk with Jesus as we grow in discernment together so that we can make better daily decisions that honor God in all we do. We will align all things against the Bible and give you practical steps to run your Christian race to win. And now your host, the discerning dad, Tim Ferrara.
0: Welcome to the Everyday Discernment podcast. My guest today is Peter Lublink. He is an executive director for Bethany Kids. Bethany Kids is a registered charity in the UK, Canada, and the USA, and provides pediatric care across seven different African countries. Peter has also traveled to 85 different countries. Peter, welcome to the show. How are you?
2: I'm doing very well. It's good to be here, man. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. And you're in Canada. We were just talking about snow. How's that? How's the winter (laughs) treating you?
2: Yeah, uh, it is a big shock to my system after spending eight years in the the desert with 120 degree heat to get to uh, this uh, below freezing stuff and a foot of snow. It's uh, it's an adjustment.
0: <laughs> so uh, let everyone know a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got to this point in your career and the journey God's led you on.
2: Absolutely. So uh, as you said, I'm living in Canada, and I've spent the last eight years living in the Middle East. Uh, While I was there, I was pastoring a church. I worked for a communications firm. Uh, Prior to that, I pastored out in Western Canada. So I've sort of been in and out of pastoral work um, and involved in sort of a church planting network. And Then now I'm working with a a Christian NGO, uh, Bethany Kids, and we do, as you said, pediatric work. So really excited to be getting into that. And I'm not coming into it from a perspective of Uh, being a a surgeon or a physiotherapist as most of the team are, uh, but obviously coming from this leadership background, administration, pastoral stuff. So it's really exciting for me. Also to serve in an international kind of team like this, I find really exciting. I grew up in Europe. I spent time in Canada, again, traveled around quite a bit. So I I find it really fulfilling to work with uh, such an international team.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And when, when I heard this, uh, you know, your name came across uh, my email and, uh, you know, I had never heard of Bethany kids, but I actually think that's a good thing because, you know, I, I read about it and I'm like, this is a really cool organization. And if I can use this platform to just let people know about it, then that's mm-hmm. kind of what I felt called to do. And so I'm, I'm excited to dive in more about what you do and kind of how people can help support it. Let everyone know too, how you uh, became a Christian. Did you grow up that way or did you, was there a you know, specific point in time where God mm-hmm. called you into ministry?
2: Sure. Yeah, I grew up in a Christian home. So you sort of ease your way into it. Um, You know, you you start with the habits and traditions of your parents, and then somewhere along the way, they become your own. And, and you start to sort of hold on to some of the things your parents passed on. And then there's other elements of Christianity that you're like, man, I don't know if that one's really from Jesus. So I'll just let that one go. (laughs) So there was never like a Sort of a specific moment. There was like a number of people. They have this sort of shining light from heaven, sort of moment. For me, it was more gradual and just sort of experiential as you slowly uh, figure it out for yourself.
0: Right. That's cool because uh, you know you had that foundation and you kind of had to make it your own. That's kind of me too. I grew up in the church and you know there wasn't a you know a conversion story when I was an an adult, but it was still something that I kind of had to uh, you know analyze. You know, hey do I agree with this? Is this just my parents' faith or is this my faith? You know, you know, and, and take part, take the good parts and then other parts that are secondary issues kind of figure out on your own, but uh, very similar story for me. And so how did you get to be a world traveler then going to all these countries? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think part of it, uh, you know, I grew up in Europe, so I already had this sense of crossing borders was was within my realm of experience. We used to go to church in France, but I lived in Germany. We lived right on the border. So already we kind of had that in the DNA. Um, and then um, we started traveling, my wife and I, even in university, we, we found uh, excuses to get overseas. Uh, but it really kind of kicked off when we moved to the Middle East. And I think in the course of uh, the last eight years, we probably went to 75 or 80 of those countries in just wow. the last eight years. Uh, we we get relatively solid summer vacations. We were, you know how it is in North America. It is hard to get, you know, we're surrounded by oceans for the most part. Yeah. It is hard to get off this continent and, and not pay a fortune.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but when I was living over in the Middle East, you know within 3 or 4 hours you're in a dozen different countries so it it kind of gave us the opportunity and we did our best to soak up that opportunity
0: yeah that's cool so talk a little more about Bethany Kids kind of you know the organization itself maybe what you do and you know how how people can we'll talk more at the end too how they can support it but just maybe a general overview to start
1: mm.
2: Yeah, sure. So it started, I think, like many other Christian mission organizations back in the 80s and 90s, you had sort of a well-meaning Westerner who who went over to East Africa and was providing uh, pediatric care. And then somewhere along the way, 20 years or so, there was this realization that we needed to do better than just depend on one individual who was supported by the West. And so they shifted the whole model to start training local uh, pediatric surgeons. So they began training pediatric surgeons from within Kenya and then invited people from all across the continent to train. So that has kind of always been the bedrock is training pediatric surgeons when those pediatric surgeons return to their home countries, they really self-identify as missionaries. Even though they're native speakers, they're in their home countries, they're really seeing themselves as people on, on a mission for, for the kingdom. So what we choose to do is continue to support those graduates. So even after they finish the training, uh, we will uh, help pay a, a top up to their salary So they're given a competitive and fair wage. Uh, any child who can't afford care who comes to them will pay for that. And then over time, we're also growing our sort of um, rehab program. So wheelchairs, physiotherapy, anything to to increase the chances of those kids getting full mobility or getting back rolling into uh, into regular life with their friends. So that's kind of it's been an interesting growth over the last 20 years. As the organization has continued to stay focused on kids and really be a Jesus-centered organization, but has shifted away from, I guess you could say, more colonial model of missions to be much more local, much more uh, grassroots. So for myself, obviously as a non-surgeon and a non-African, um, I'm not dictating surgical policy, I'm not telling yeah. people how to do rehab, uh, but I'm really trying to connect the stories uh, that I'm that I'm gathering from, from the continent of Africa, trying to resource those teams so that if they need um if they need funds, if they need program assistance for something, they need connections, I can try to uh open those doors. And I think you said it well at the beginning. Um Bethany Kids has really been while they've been doing great work for two decades they they really are not well known in North America so uh, the the steep learning curve is really trying to get this story out both the cause, the need for kids to have medical care and also the the solution that is this particular organization and trying to champion that cause is the the what I do for the most part,
0: yeah, and I'm sure. The need is so great there because I'm sure a lot of this pediatric care is preventable, but being in a third world country, a lot of times, I'm sure it's a lot of stuff that you're just kind of cleaning up after the fact. And so I'm sure that's some of the challenges, how to provide uh, preventative care and also care after the fact. And what does that look like? And also what kind of partnerships do they have with like churches there to get people plugged in if, if they're not already as part of the mission?
2: Mm, Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a good point that uh, we see a lot more, you know, spina bifida, hydrocephalus, those kinds of conditions that are congenital issues. And that could have the the chances of having them could have been reduced with uh, better nutrition as the as the nursing mom or as the pregnant mother uh, had chance, but that's just not the reality for many people. So In terms of the preventative, we, uh, in Kenya, for example, we, we do a big mobile clinic. And part of that is public awareness, uh, public health education for, for people, you know, things like folic acid, just, uh, nutrients that you can get into your body when you're pregnant so that you can decrease the chances of some of these challenges. Um, and then as you say, you know, that you can't, you can't change the entire world at once. There's still going to be some kids who are, uh, born with specific challenges. Yeah. So uh, we, we try to take care of them both at a mobile clinic to kind of early identification to families, because one of the challenges we face is that families in particular, when they have a child, and maybe they're born in a rural community, they don't fully understand the the nature of what this child might have. Mm. So uh, as, as an example, one of our staff members today, she was born in um, in a community just near the Maasai people, who you know with the, the red robes, a very tall sort of cattle herding tribe uh, in rural Kenya. So she was born in that area in the Samburu people, um, and when she was born with spina bifida, uh, the the assumption was that she was cursed. Oh, wow. And, you know, curse on one child, that's a curse on the family. So, uh, immediately her extended family tried to poison her, uh, tried try to get rid of her after she was born and that didn't work. And so she lived until her teenage years. Uh, but she, because of her particular challenges, she was not able to control her bowels. She wasn't able to do any of that. And, um, so she, she wanted, she tried to take her own life. She tried to poison herself in her teenage years and it wasn't until she got connected to a church. She wasn't born and raised in a church, but she got connected to this church in her teenage years. And for the first time really had this sense that there was hope. She got introduced to Bethany kids to our surgeon and they were able to actually help her solve her, her problems. And I think, um, that that's to me part of the beauty here is that that the church is seen as a beacon of hope for people uh and so we do try to have tight partnerships across the continent of africa uh, where our goal one of our stated mandates is that as people come through um, our hospitals and our, our clinics we want to make sure that they are connected to communities of hope of grace of love people who will accept them regardless of whether they can you know walk in a straight line or not people who can really uh love them well. And that's not, um, yeah, that, that's not something that, that, is, that is simple, right? You know, people often see the church, particularly in the West, maybe as, you know, as hypocritical or hateful or what all of this baggage that we're working through here. My hope is always that the church would be first and foremost known for their love. And so we try to partner with churches so that people who feel unloved, people who feel hopeless, Uh, are able to find love and hope uh, within those churches. So we do try very hard to to keep those connections uh, alive and well on the ground.
0: That's awesome. And something that, you know, without being there, being able to hear those stories definitely gets you a cultural perspective, but also a way that you know, we can show love. There's love of Christ, even if we're not there and to be able to give or to have some type of partnership and to, to help support organizations like that, that are doing the work that are the hands and feet that are on the ground. Um, and so that's a really cool reminder that, you know, there is such a big need out there. And a lot of times, I mean, I'm guilty of it too. You, you we're in an American bubble if you're in America and it's like, you know, you don't realize that there's so much need out there because all we know is is honestly luxury. Even if we have challenges Mm -hmm. here, it's, it's luxurious compared to 90% of the world, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you hear the word privilege talked about a lot today and, and in historical and global terms, if you live in North America, you exist with a great deal of privilege. Yeah. You have, in most cases, access to public education. Uh, in most cases, um, even um, minimal healthcare. In a place like Canada, full healthcare. But just generally speaking, we have resources that most people historically have never had. Um, we have, you know, people in North America will say, "Well, I don't have a lot of options," but they'll have the internet. They'll be on Instagram. They'll be on right. Facebook. And you think, you know, the the resources that we have, you know. Even though seeing a doctor is better than Googling a medical condition, there, there are plenty of people in the world who uh, they, they can't access any information outside of their local community. Um, I was thinking even about food. One of the largest industries in North America is the diet industry and, and yeah. this idea of eating less food. Yeah. the idea historically that we would have a people that needed so much help to eat less food <laughs> when so many people on the planet are starving to death, right. uh, can't access fresh water. Um, yeah, the, the point is, is real that it is easy for us to be in a bubble. And and I don't think that's any one person's fault. Right. Uh, it's just that is the reality. And And as a church, I do think we have a an opportunity to, to remind ourselves as a community, we are a global kingdom. Uh, and you know, whether someone's in Sierra Leone or Arkansas, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right.
0: So good. Love it. Let's move on to some quick icebreakers to get to know you a little bit. So what would you say your favorite movie of all time is?
2: I would say maybe secret life of Walter Mitty. I just love the way it's shot, the travel, the story. It's brilliant. I love it.
0: Yeah. With Ben Stiller, right? Yeah. Awesome. And if you could meet anyone alive or dead, who would it be?
2: Uh, that's a tricky one. I I might say uh, like St. Francis of Assisi, but I'm sure we need a translator since my <laughs> Italian just doesn't exist.
0: Yeah. What was uh, what interests you about him?
2: Um, I don't know. Like even as a kid, uh, I had this fascination with him. There's just this sort of countercultural aspect to him and particularly living in the period of the Crusades where everyone was taking up arms for the kingdom. And he was like, hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll do it a different way. Yeah, Uh, And I just like uh, when people stand up to authority like that and, and not just speak about it, but actually model a new way. So yeah, I'm really, I think he's seems like a swell dude. I'd love to, you know, sit down for coffee with him (laughs) and see what he's about.
0: (laughs) What about an author you'd recommend or a book?
2: Um, you know, for me, in my own learning, I remember when I came across, uh, you know, Shane Claiborne's Irresistible Revolution, and that must have been like well, almost, you know, 15, 20 years ago or something. And it just hit me at the right time. And I think reshaped a lot of my theology in really healthy, positive ways, made me ask questions I wasn't asking before. So I would recommend that one for Christians to, to dig into.
0: Cool. And what hobbies do you have? What do you like to do in your free time?
2: Uh, I do a lot of running. Um, so, even this morning, we had a big snowstorm with a foot of snow and I still went out for, you know, a 10-mile run uh, wow. just, to, just to stretch the legs. <laughs> so, that is probably – uh, tr- running and traveling are probably the two things I spend the most leisure time on. Yeah. And
0: running is traveling at the same time, kind of.
2: <laughs> well, th- I think that's why I like it because I I've never been sort of a – a competitive person. So when you get to like team sports where the whole goal is to beat someone else, it just didn't really I don't know. I I didn't really get into it. Maybe I wasn't good enough at it. That's (laughs) why I didn't love it. But I never got into it. Running though was like, oh, I wonder what that neighborhood looks like. I should run through it. Uh oh that I've never been down that path. Yesterday I went left. Maybe today I'll go right. So I do love that sort of exploration of if you even in your own neighborhoods in your own cities. Yeah, exactly.
0: Cool. Well, we're going to move on to the two discernment questions I ask all my guests. So if you want to start by telling us the time and you had godly discernment, kind of what that looked like, so we can kind of learn from the process, not so much the exact example, but, you know, we all have a discernment process that God sometimes leads us through. So Mm. the time you had godly discernment.
2: Okay. um, I'll I'll try to think of something recent here and I'll go back to last year. So I started working at Bethany Kids uh, the first week in March. And you'll, you'll know that, you know, we said it's a medical charity international. And that was the (laughs) same time that already schools started shutting down, flights started being canceled due to the pandemic. And I remember having a conversation that first week with one of my staff members and we were saying like, how do we handle this? And he said, well, I think what, you know, maybe the best way we do this is, you know, we just take everyone invite them take their vacation take two three weeks off and we'll kind of ride this out and I remember saying like I think this is going to be around for like two years man like we need a long-term strategy this isn't going to go away and they're like no I don't know and my for whatever reason I had this conviction that this was going to be around for a while and we needed to adjust our model so that we didn't stop we didn't pause anything we continued and um I would prefer if the other person had been right on that one, but um, it's been a year and we're still in the middle of it. So uh, I would say that was a a good example of a time where I, I think I, I discerned what was happening well. And I would say that that was sort of God's leading for this organization. And, and I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, sorry, I paid attention and sort of, you know, at the time, there's sort of a lot of what, it, whether media or people's hopes. Everyone always hopes it's going to go away quickly. Yeah, that's our natural instinct, right? And so, for someone to say, "Hey, listen, this is going to be around for two years," and to start putting a plan in place around that—that um, that sounds like the pessimist, right? Yeah. Um, and and it's easy to want to be an optimist in all situations. So, I would say that's an example where I think. I discerned correctly, fortunately, um, and, and we were able to navigate this thing well as an organization.
0: Yeah. It doesn't make you popular if everyone's like, oh no, it'll be, <laughs> it'll be gone in a month. And you're like, ah, I'm not too sure. You know, we I need don't to kind of so. have a safety net just in case. And, you know, yeah, everyone in the world wanted it to be gone in months, but it's like, you know, it's, we have to be realistic sometimes. And having mm. discernment is not just deciding something that is popular or that, you know, you want in your flesh, but you have to go Mm -hmm. to God and say, you know, what is, what is the real situation here? You know, I mean, Joseph Mm -hmm. was in Egypt for 40 years and and
1: in slavery
0: and all this kind of stuff. And he, he probably wanted it gone in a year, but God had bigger Mm -hmm. plans that ended up redeeming uh, and saving Israel. Um, And So time, time for God and us is two different things. And we have to, you know, pray to be aligned with his timetable sometimes and Mm -hmm. uh, actually all the time. And so that's yeah. a good reminder, uh, and I'm sure you, going into a medical organization in the middle of a pandemic, were like, "What am I getting myself <laughs> into?" Right.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've said to a few people, like, you know, if I had had maybe like a year to to ramp up a bit, that would have been nice. In fact, what had happened, I was uh, I was been living in the Middle East, as I said, and I was supposed to live there until June. I happened to be in North America for one week in February, and it was at that time it was like, this isn't going to go away. Um, And that was last day of February. So almost a year ago. So I, um, all I had was a backpack and we were like, you know what, we're not going to return to the Middle East right now. Let's just see, see what goes on. And in the end, we never returned. We had to have friends pack up our belongings, get into our apartment, sell our stuff, sell our car, all that stuff. Um, And again, it's sort of, you know, when we talk about discernment, it's not always discerning what you want to happen. You know, the best case scenario, sometimes it's realizing things are gonna be harder. And your example of Joseph uh, is, is a good one, both in terms of his the, the, the tragedy of living there for decades and being able to say, listen, we're gonna have, yeah, we're gonna have some prosperous times, but you know what? Actually, we're gonna have some bad times too yeah. uh, for quite a few years. We'll get through it if we prepare. But but most people don't want to hear that. You know, yeah. people are happy to hear we're going to have years of um, of extra food, and people are like, yeah, that's great. Thank you, good prophecy. <laughs>
0: yeah. Really?
2: Uh, and then you say, listen, I, I think it's going to be a rough road, um, and and I don't. That's not any kind of prophecy. But that in in my case, it was just looking at the sort of medical data and thinking I I have a like. There's no reason this would go away faster than uh, two years. Like, yeah. there's no scientific reason that this is going to disappear. Um, you don't want to be right but but I'm thankful for the sake of the organization that we made the right choices in the, in that season early on.
0: How has the pandemic been in Africa because I think they were one of the continents that got hit the least but I'm not mm-hmm. 100% sure on that. Can you clarify that or how it's been for the organization?
2: Yeah, I would say we um yeah, there's a lot of sort of theories and studies as to why different places on earth are being affected differently. In most cases, uh, most of our hospitals, the the big impact was that uh, they had early sort of uh, lockdowns on transportation, so people couldn't get to hospitals as easily. So we did see our work was impacted because children couldn't get to the hospital as easy as they could before. We haven't seen COVID, the disease itself, have too big of an impact uh, in most of our countries, in Sierra Leone, uh, again, this is a place that always, already was hit hard from Ebola. Uh, we had our, our colleagues, actually, we have uh, one of the only pediatric surgeons in the country who works in Sierra Leone is our Bethany Kids person. And in their ward, two surgeons in other departments died of COVID. So wow. it certainly has impacted uh, people in different ways, yeah. less, certainly a, a lower death rate than um, what we're seeing in the States right now. Um, and, and in other places in the world. Uh, and why that's happening, some people have projected that because most of the people dying of COVID tend to be older, because you have populations with a lower uh, life expectancy, a, a lower average age, maybe that's the factor. But I think it'll take years for, for them to fully figure it out. Uh, in many ways, our colleagues have gone back to more of a normal um you know, existence uh, than, than what we're having even here right now.
0: Yeah. And I know with the lack of travel too, it's probably hurt a lot of organizations that are mission focused, um, not just yours, because you don't have the people coming over to serve and to help and the other doctors to come support. And I'm sure even financially people are more strapped than they have been. So they're mm-hmm. less likely to give to missions or to be able to serve uh, would just be my, my hunch, but.
2: Yeah, no, I, and it's a, it's a fair point. And I think, I'm really thankful, you know, we're talking about discernment. I'm so thankful that 20 years ago, the people who made this decision had the discernment to say, let's shift our model away from sending folks from North America and focus Mm. on local development because that took 20 years. Yeah. Right. That doesn't just happen overnight. Things take time. But then we get to 2020. The reality is we didn't need as much as I would have liked to go over and and, uh, support our, our people in whatever ways that I could. I didn't need to for the sake of getting kids surgery. We, all of our surgeons live in their home countries. Yeah. So in many ways, I think our program was less affected than many other organizations because we we don't have a model that depends on Westerners traveling. It's a bonus and it, it does happen within our organization, but it's not an essential part of our systems. So we were still able to care for children. We still did Thousands of surgeries last year. Um, did seven hundred plus wheelchairs. We're still able to do the work, yeah. uh, even though um, someone like myself is not able to travel. Uh, it didn't really slow us down. The, the challenge, and I think you mentioned it there, is that in the West there certainly was um, a decrease in opportunities for us to to raise money. You know, if you're having uh, fundraising dinners or speaking at churches, that sort of thing, just is not happening this year yeah. in the same way.
0: Yeah, very true what would you say a time in your life where you did not necessarily have the best discernment in and kind of what you learned from it?
2: Mm. So, um, I think I mentioned, I pastored on the West coast when I uh, was younger and I was sort of in my mid early twenties. Um, and you know, for the most part, I had an amazing time out there, but I can think of plenty of, op- uh, of times where you kind of, you had the moment to say one thing and you said something else, you, um, you know, someone would say, "Hey, listen, I'm you know I'm feeling overwhelmed, and I, you know I feel like I want to step down from this role." And you think I should have just said, "You're right, yeah. I, how do? That's a great idea. Step down, we'll support you." But you kind of push them to say, "No, no, no, no you could do this. You'll be fine. Let's make it happen." Yeah. Um. I think there was um. Yeah, d- d- plenty and plenty of opportunities as a young pastor where I made the wrong call, and I'm someone who's. I like to sort of get things done and I like to push things forward and you kind of, you have this energy to make it happen. And I'm sure that for some people that probably came across like a a bull in a China shop and dude, just slow down, just pay (laughs) attention a little bit more. Uh, So I'm sure if you talk to people in that first church, uh, you know, 14 years ago um, as much as I look back fondly and think we amazing things happened, I probably messed a lot of things up too.
0: Yeah, we try to sledgehammer door open is what I've said before. And, and right. you know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, waiting on God's timing, like we talked about before, is that sometimes we have to just be faithful where we're at. And then we have these great ideas or God's given us a vision, but a lot of times that vision is maybe years down the road. And so we have to have discernment, is this the right timing to implement this? Is God behind it? Or am I just going to be muscling through it and then, you know, stress myself and those around me out and, and ultimately yeah. maybe even fail if I'm just doing it in my own effort. So great mm-hmm. reminder.
2: And I think one thing that that's sort of I carry with me now as well is, you know, I still meet people who are at different stages and ages, and and some of them still have that kind of bull in a china shop approach, or behave differently in situations. And I find uh, I, I have increasing grace for people who mess up because I think yeah, you know, I made plenty of messes myself, right. and my intentions were good. I was trying to do the right thing. I thought I was doing the right thing, uh, but it, but it didn't come across like that. So I hope. That uh, one of the changes in myself is that I have more grace for people and their errors, um, knowing that that's, you know, I was in the same boat and make and probably still am making goofy decisions here and there.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. So, talk about the mission field in general, both local and abroad, having been a pastor and now in an organization. What have you seen churches do well and also not do well in supporting missions? Just some general themes, you know, that maybe not everyone can apply, but just kind of what you've seen work well in supporting the mission field.
2: Right. One of the things that really encourages me, and it's kind of a very old school thing, um, but it was the the relational connection that churches had with missionaries. Mm -hmm. And I think of like the old bulletin board at the back of the church and um, you know, they've got like the prayer requests and they got photos and they got little maps and there was a real deep desire to, to create this relational bond between someone living on the opposite side of the planet and someone in, in a church in, in, you know, Tennessee. Um, so I think that that is beautiful. There's a a desire for relational connection within mission. I think that's amazing. I think the church, uh, for all of its failure failures has always had this desire to try to do things. Even when we did the wrong things, there was a desire to, to try to, make the world a better place, even if that was misunderstood and clouded in issues of colonialism and everything. There was, I think, a desire to to make things better, a desire to help and a desire to stay relationally connected. So those are things I think are beautiful. And I hope we continue to see. I guess one more thing I'd say kind of about the historical church that we did well, there was a deep generosity. um, And, you you know, I think there's there's much to be learned from um, sort of you know, all forms of Christianity today. And one of the, the interesting things is, um, you know, our, our grandparents in many ways are just far more generous of putting money in the plate for their local church, for their international stuff. Like the the percentage that they were giving was just incredible. And I think charities, even like ourselves continue to benefit from older senior citizens who continue to donate well. Um, and, and that has a huge impact, because our generation's like, "Well, I liked it on Facebook, so <laughs> I'm good, right? Yeah right there, there's a deep generosity. I would, so those things really give me hope. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're looking to critique, I would say one of the things we can learn is um, that we have made mistakes in terms of uh, missions as part of kind of national colonization projects that we have maybe too often made missions about our country, the US, Canada, uh, England, Spain, whatever it was, uh, too frequently we've tied those together. And I think we really need to separate them to say, this is kingdom of God stuff. So I'm not there to to, uh, uh, teach my cultural values as a Canadian. That's not my purpose here. I think we can do better on that front. I think we can do better at identifying local missionaries And getting them on our bolts and boards. And this is something I've I've really tried to encourage churches to think about is don't don't get rid of that relational connection that we used to have that that's that's beautiful the the update that we could use is rather than having, you know, Mr and Mrs Smith, who came from Tennessee and, and went to, you know, East Africa maybe we should get to know a local missionary who lives and works in their home country, local pastor, local surgeon, put them on a bulletin board, get on email. Like we have this, you know, for many parts of the world that the the internet connections, we have the opportunity to get to know other Christians who are doing incredible things. I think that would be really a a learning curve for the church we could do better in. Uh, And I guess the last thing I would say is, and it connects to something I said we used to do really well is the sense of generosity. And I mean, this both for local and international mission. Yeah. Um, we talk more about being generous today than we are. Um, you know, you've, you've see Christians who are really publicly, Oh, we got to do this, but you know, help this. And this is a great cause. You should help it. But, but they're not actually going to give themselves. Yeah. So I would say those are some of the things that are a critique as well as areas we could do better in.
0: Those are great points. I love it. And that's a lot of what and I've seen in my church. I know a lot of other churches are focusing. They've had to focus on local because, you know, we didn't have the the regional, the global missions that we had last year. But at the same point, it's it's important to have those connections with what you're giving to and not just writing a blank check for for a cause that you're not connected to. And so that's something we've done too, is, you know, get to know who's on the ground there, get to know the updates. Yeah. And that's something our mission directors do really well uh, at my church specifically, but also, you know, going back to generosity, you know, it's one of those things that uh, as pastors and, and seeing the money that comes in, you know, a lot of times it's like 20, 30% of the church that actually ties the 10%. And you wonder, you know, in an <laughs> earthly you know perspective like what what could we do if every single person tithed 10% what would this church look like and you also apply yeah. that to missions how much if then you take every single church in the in North America for example if every church fully tithed and gave to missions you know everyone tithed and then the church tithed that 10% i mean how much more good could we do in this world in the mission field by Mm -hmm. just giving of our money, like we're called to. And so that's something I have to check with myself too, is that, you know, I'm not just giving to support a pastor in a church so he can have a better car. I'm honestly giving because first I'm called to, there's a blessing when we give. And then third of all, because there is such a big need out there that, you know, we have to be, we have to hold onto our finances with an open hand because God gives Mm us, God gives us everything we have to begin with. And so, we have to have that generous spirit like you're talking about, not just giving our our money, but our, our time, our talents and our money too, to the church, to the mission field, to yeah. whatever God has placed on your heart. You know, it's not that we just, you know, shotgun it out to, to multiple people and let, you know, but have discernment about who you give to and why. Is your church mm-hmm. supporting missions? Do they give a portion of the money that comes into missions and ask? If you don't know, ask because churches should be open with who they're giving to and why. And, you know, a lot of times there's, you know, budget reviews once a year at churches that have, go to them, be involved, ask questions, know where your money's going to, and know that it, you know, if a church is doing it right, it really is supporting a much greater work than what you see with your own eyes.
2: Absolutely. I I think, you know, locally, globally, you know, we've talked before, what is the reputation of the church? And there are a lot of negative things that are associated with the church. Um, and and which which should upset all of us because uh, we should be known first and foremost for our love and generosity is part of that the way we share what we have is one aspect of loving our neighbor Um, and that applies to whether it be Bethany Kids or any other organization out there again whether local global regardless Uh, when we pastored in the Middle East Um, you know, 10% of everything that came into our church, we would donate to other Christian causes around the world, other, you know, missionary organization, environmental causes, whatever it was that was trying to make the world a better place. Uh, That was actually that priority of making sure that 10% was given away that was done before there was any question of whether a, a pastor would be paid the priority was we need to make sure that when we know because when people knew the money in the plate was going to to make people's lives better globally, yeah. um, in, in some ways that actually increased the the desire for people to donate because they knew, like you said, it wasn't about buying sort of a super jet for a mega pastor. This was right. about making the 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 world a better place. And and I, your point earlier too strikes me. Um, about how, imagine what would happen if we all did this. I remember someone saying uh, uh, something like the the church is like a sleeping dragon. Like it has so much potential to really change everything around it. Uh, But we've been asleep at the wheel for a little while. And I think we could do better. And I think, you know, global pandemic is an opportunity for us to really dig our heels in and show love. Uh, people who are, people are hurting really a ton right now, globally, uh, our neighbors, you know, they're in isolation or they're, they can't get out for growth, whatever they the list is endless. Um, we, we have an opportunity to love right now.
0: Yeah. And that's something that honestly, for as much, you know, doctrinal theology issues as I have with the LDS church, you know, they do it really well. They, not only do they basically force their members to give, which is a different issue, but they mm-hmm. also force them to serve, you know, which, you know, it's, it's a double-edged approach because you don't want to have to force people to do that stuff. You want right. them to be able to give out of their own heart in a generous, mm-hmm. generous spirit, but at the same time, they're able to build amazing buildings, they are able to serve in, in all over the world because that's their mindset, that it's not even optional, is that I'm a part of this movement, I'm going to do this. And so, you know, the American church has to definitely take parts of that where, you know, we have to not stop seeing giving and serving as optional, you know, if, if I, it's not that I have to give, it's that I get to give, you know, Mm -hmm. and that, you know, out of that comes a blessing of knowing that I'm supporting the kingdom and that God blesses those who are generous givers, the Bible says. So,
2: yeah. Yeah.
0: Last question I have for you is, you know, mission trips are not just uh, designed to help the places that are being served, but also, you know, we hear stories that it changes the lives of those who do the serving. So talk about this dynamic of what you've seen in your life and how it's important to, you know, serve others, instead of just serving yourself all the time, how it kind of gets you out of that mindset mm-hmm. of just me.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And again, there's been a lot of critique, particularly around short-term missions, um, as to how they're done being referred to as sort of, um Charity, charity tourism, that kind of thing. I think part of it is that we need to reframe our language with short-term missions and almost accept that we're really not doing a ton for anyone else in the world. If you, if you personally went over to East Africa to do a thing for two weeks, you you would be better to go in with the expectation you're actually not going there to to do anything for other people. That's what you're doing daily. But long term, the impact is not huge on other people. Yeah. They'll be like, well, here comes another white missionary. We'll see another <laughs> one in two weeks and the bus will pull up. Yeah. I think we need to start to see that in terms of, we'll say, discipleship or training for our people. Part of this, what you said earlier, this kind of expectation that our people would be engaged globally in mission Uh, Because I think when you speak to a lot of people who dedicate their entire lives to service people who donate regularly, a lot of those people can trace back a moment where they went to another place, they went to another country, they went to another scenario that was different than their own, and they had their kind of eyes opened. And I think we need to kind of reframe those missions trips to be awareness trips, trips for the purpose is not for you to go, uh, you know, you're not saying to your friends, hey, I'm going to go build a school. You might do that, but what you're doing actually is I'm going to go learn about another part of the world. While I'm there, I'll I'll help in whatever way that I can, but I'm actually going as a student. I'm going to learn from from my Christian brothers and sisters globally who've got this church in a remote village, and I want to learn, and I want to have my horizons extended. And I think when we frame it that way, it starts to make a big difference, uh, because that's, to me, when I look at it, that's always been the biggest impact. Anyone who's been on a short-term missions trip, even if they talk about the impact that they had on a local village building the school or something, the real significant thing is they become more globally engaged. Uh, they become more connected to causes outside of their own. They start to chip away at that narcissism stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I think... We, we need to reframe it and not lose our global connection, uh, but I think we can do it differently and probably we can do it better. Yeah,
0: really good point. You know, I like the term awareness trip. You know, it, it's something that, um, yeah, you know, you're not doing them, you know, we can't come into the scenario thinking like, I'm just going to do so much in, in the three days I'm here, which... Two days of travel and one day of me hanging out at the beach, you know it's like we <laughs> right. have to be aware and then take back your learnings and share that with people. You know, mm. document the trip, have a <laughs> old fashioned slideshow, whatever you need to do to just bring mm. awareness to to the trip that you went on is not just about your hands and feet doing the work, but also I love that awareness, bringing it back to your church, writing a a blog, you know, uh, doing a video that they show in the announcements, whatever, whatever that looks like, you know, bringing that awareness out to to help others see the need. Cause I know when I see those videos, you're like, wow, you know, it's, it's almost like you're there for a second where you're like, wow, there, there is a big need there. Mm -hmm. I know where my money's going now and I'm going to hopefully be more likely to give if I know the need is there. So Absolutely. Awesome. So as we wrap up, I'll give you a chance to talk about Bethany Kids, how people can uh, support uh, through financial support, um, through communication and prayer. All these methods are important for, for charities mm-hmm. to keep up their work. And so just kind of end on, you know, the work you're involved in, where people, what people can do to help support Bethany Kids.
2: Absolutely. So as we said at the outset, we're really looking to make relational connections with our surgeons. We've got seven countries we work in and we pay for part of those people's salaries in each of those countries. I would love to see individuals, Christian businesses, churches really say, listen, I love what's going on Sierra Leone. I want to support this individual by name. I want to help them. I want to see their ministry flourish, you know, get the email newsletters, like really connect deeply to the different causes and parts of our organization. So we're really hoping that over the next year or two, as we grow programmatically, as we serve more kids, that we would be able to get more donors in North America, churches, businesses, individuals who can come on board and help. Um, And part of that is, finances. Part of that, you said, well, is communication, Uh, you know, stories that are coming out. We want those kind of uh, echoed and repeated and amplified around the world so that uh, we can see what's going on. So if someone has zero money, then by all means, they can kind of share it. And I mean more than just like us on Instagram, but, you know, share it with their networks, you know, send grandma an email and be like, hey, I got this thing. I I know you love these newsletters. Here, check this out. Um, We do have a newsletter. uh, So people can sign up for a newsletter on our website. We do have an Instagram, bethanykids.ig. And we we really try to put resources in Christians' hands in North America. So we produce a monthly devotional guide, uh, which often features the stories of the children we serve and the staff members. We're doing a Lent guide that starts... um, and we're going through this sort of Lenten season together. We do the same at Christmas time. Uh, so we're trying to make sure we we are really um, giving resources to people so they can share them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in short, we could use everyone's money, but we could also use your voice. If someone wants to travel, we can chat with them as well when the pandemic kind of settles down a bit. But in the meantime, we, we need champions for this cause. We need people who are willing to pick it up as their own. And, you know, we in North America, we have two full-time staff in total, you know, our marketing budget, our communications, like it is volunteers. They're ambassadors, people who just do it out of, out of their free time. And yeah. of your listeners, if there's people who represent churches who can support us, we need you. Uh, if there's people who are like, Hey, I want a champion. We, we need, we yeah. need all the help we can get.
0: Awesome. That's bethanykids.org, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. bethanykids.org and then on Instagram, bethanykids.ig.
0: Awesome. Well, that is literally the life and death for children over in Africa. And, you know, I'd encourage everyone to at least check it out. It doesn't hurt going to the website, seeing what they're about and signing up for the communication. And if you would, if I would love to hear stories, if your church ends up partnering with Bethany Kids, Uh, it is, like I said, such a a great organization. And one of the reasons I wanted to have Peter on. So Peter, thank you so much for what you're doing and uh, God bless you and, and the work you're involved in.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: That's going to do it for today. Thanks so much for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star review on the platform of your choice. And email me your questions to discerningdad at outlook.com. I would love to hear from you as well as any feedback you have from the show. And for next week, I'm talking to music artist Aaron Schust. He had the famous single, My Savior, My God. And we're going to talk about what he's been doing as well as his heart for Israel. So make sure you check it out. And until then, go with God, grow in discernment, and keep your eyes on Jesus.
1: Thank you for listening to the Everyday Discernment Podcast. For more information on Discerning Dad, go to discerning-dad.com. Be sure to follow on all the social media platforms. Just search for Discerning Dad. Please share this podcast with a friend and leave an honest review on whichever platform you listen. Feel free to send any comments, suggestions, questions, or prayer requests at, at outlook.com. Until next time. Keep fighting the good fight.